Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress will be back in session next Tuesday evening as lawmakers face a full plate of legislative priorities, including debating the Biden administration's $773 billion defense budget request. This as the White House increasingly brushes aside Russia's threats to increase the volume and capabilities of the weapons it's sending to Ukraine, including more heavy artillery, helicopters, as well as the United States Air Force rapidly developing the new Phoenix Ghost loitering munition and shipping 121 to the besieged country. And after weeks of claiming their interest was in Donbass, Russian commanders are making it clear that they really want the entire eastern half of Ukraine, as well as the country's entire south, uh, to prevent it from being a viable state. Uh, If it's not already clear, Russia is likely not to stop there and will ultimately seek taking the entire country and will, as so many have made clear since the beginning of this conflict, are likely to move on other nations once they're done in Ukraine. French President Emmanuel Macron and the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen are in a runoff for the presidency in a race that will be decided this Sunday and will have profound implications for global security, revelations of Le Pen's financial, political, and ideological links to Putin don't appear to be blunting her prospects any more than the prospect of Russian links hurt Donald Trump with his base as he was running for the presidency and indeed while was in office. Macron is key to European unity on Russia as well as China, and Le Pen's strong showing might already be undermining the efficacy Uh, his efficacy in this crucial year when France holds the rotating EU presidency and a flurry of U.S. diplomacy in Asia as American officials work overtime to convince the Solomon Islands against growing closer to China as Beijing expands its sphere of influence into the strategically crucial Pacific archipelago and Saudi Arabia and the UAE continue to brush off Washington, siding with Russia in the Ukraine conflict, and the days for Israel's governing coalition appear to be numbered. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Ilan Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security. Everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Aerospace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting uh, in Nashville. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, welcome back. Hope everybody had a happy Easter and are having a very um, happy uh, Passover, especially uh, tonight on the last uh, day uh, of Passover. Uh, Michael, uh, start us off. Welcome back uh, to the to the program. Um, after a uh, spring break, right, Congress is back in session next Tuesday evening. Budget hearings are going to be starting. There's also uh, Title 42, uh, COVID relief legislation, uh, seek and competes legislation, the Ukraine supplemental, and then obviously congressional reaction to the administration's decision to end any uh, satellite uh, tests, which I think is 
both tactical and strategic on the administration's part, and again, budget deliberations. Start us off on what we should expect when Congress is back in session next week. Okay, so as you point out, Congress has been out of session for two weeks and comes back next week, but a lot has really been happening. Um, so first, you know, the president announced yesterday that he is sending an additional $800 million in aid to Ukraine, and that will bring the total, since he's been elected, up to about $4 billion in aid. However, that will exhaust the amount of money that Congress has authorized for aid to Ukraine. So uh, the administration plans to send over an emergency supplemental package next week to Congress. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, has already indicated she will take it up right away. Um, And I've heard from some of my friends in the administration that um, this package may include some money for the Ukraines to actually engage in direct commercial sales uh, directly with defense contractors instead of relying on the American government to decide wh- uh, what they get, although <clears throat> they would still have to go through the, the, the process. Um, then you also mentioned um, the uh, decision to uh, end anti-satellite testing, which really makes the United States the first country in the world to make that announcement. Uh, and that was not uh, well-received uh, on Capitol Hill, both by Democrats and Republicans. Now, Republicans, uh, I think, were more public uh, in their dissatisfaction with that decision. But I've talked to several Democrats that were very unhappy with it as well, especially the timing of the decision. I mean, here is a time when we're you know, engaged in you know, struggle uh, for peace in, in Europe and NATO's uh, at risk, uh, plus a power struggle with China. And right. you know, why would we continue to keep saying what we're not going to do and indicate more weakness? Because uh, we're saying that we're hoping other countries will go along. Well, there's no way the Chinese and the Russians are going along with this decision. And you know, frankly, Mike Turner, who's the ranking uh, Republican on the Intelligence Committee, uh, you know, came out saying that ending these tests would put the U.S. at, at a great uh, disadvantage. Um, and that it really strips ourselves of the option of increasing our capabilities in space uh, and responding to increased Russian and Chinese threats. And the same for Mike Rogers, who's the ranking uh, Republican on armed services, also said, why would we um, keep telling them what we're not going to do? That's not deterrence. Uh, it does nothing to deter our adversaries uh, in escalating in, in a warfighting domain. And he's worried that it's really going to have the opposite effect of what was intended by the administration. So I, this was not well received on the Hill. And I would expect a future Republican administration to, to uh, you know, overturn that decision. Uh, you mentioned uh, well, Title uh, there's a, there's, There is a sense among some, though, that the administration is being a little pragmatic, right? Let's let's lead. Let's tampen this down. We're confident in what our capabilities are. And you know, we, we can be the big guy in this until such time as we have to think uh, differently about it, right? I mean, so there is, you know, you, you could argue the United States is trying to set a good example by the guy always being, you know, chiding Russia and China for what it is they're doing in space and polluting it with their anti-satellite tests, right? Yeah, I mean, so- I, I, right. But that's, it's, to me, it's just naive because we think that the Russians and Chinese think that we do. So we're going to set a good example for them. They don't think the way we do. So they don't care that we're not going to be testing anti-satellite weapons. And I'm not saying that we should, but saying that we're not going to, I, I don't think serves any, any practical purpose because I don't think that Russians and Chinese are going to follow our example. Um, so then we talked, uh, we've talked uh, two weeks ago about uh, COVID relief and where that stands. And that still is stalled primarily because of you know, Title 42, which we talked about two weeks ago is you know, a provision from a 1944 law that allows administration to ban goods and people from coming into the country during a pandemic that authority will expire on, on May 23rd. Now, it looked earlier this week that the Biden administration was maybe going to back off on that because they have a lot of Senate Democrats in tough races that have said they don't support the repeal. And now you have Senate candidates uh, in tough seats like Fetterman in Pennsylvania and others also saying it. And the head of the Democratic Senatorial Committee, who oversees the whole campaign arm, the Senate Democrats, Gary Peters, questioning uh, the move. But however, now it looks like the Biden administration is going to rely on the courts to make the decision for them. 
so they don't upset the progressives, hoping actually that the courts do prevent him uh, from, from lifting uh, that, 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 that ban. So we'll have to wait and see. But at the same time, uh, COVID relief will be stalled. Now, the progressives uh, are now asking Biden to declare a national emergency like Trump did with the border wall and take that money out of the Pentagon budget to pay for COVID relief. But uh, there's no way uh, that is going to happen. Um, and then uh, lastly, uh, we talked about, um, you know, uh, Yusika competes in the China legislation, but there's something else that's kind of actually tied to that right now, and it's going to be getting very little attention, is that the SBIR program, the Small Business Innovative Research Program, is on the verge of expiring because it was not reauthorized uh, last year. And there is hope to get that attached to this China Yusika uh, competes bill. Uh, now, the, the passage of that bill, I think, is, is still very much in question. And there's already talk of lifting the chips component of the bill, which is the $52 billion in investment for domestic semiconductor research, design, manufacturing, and providing other incentives uh, to the uh, to that, th that industry to bring that more onshore because we've lost so much of that capability. That could possibly be taken out and put in an omnibus at the end of the year if they're unable to come to terms on a China package. That would also leave SBIR reauthorization with no home if they can even come to a deal on it. Right now, Rand Paul is opposing uh, the reauthorization of the SBIR program. He's the ranking Republican on the Small Business Committee in the Senate. Uh, he's complaining that uh, you know some of these companies have become what they call SBIR mills. They rely solely on this funding. There's concern that the Chinese military is recruiting researchers from some of these uh, companies to pilfer our research. But at the same time, you know, Deputy Secretary, uh, you know, Kathleen Hicks earlier this month, you know, talked about her concern about the substantial decline in small businesses competing for contracts. And uh, so failure to renew this, uh, this program would really continue to shut out small businesses even more from doing business with the DOD, which I think would be very dangerous. Uh, and uh, give us your sense on there were three alarming things that happened since Friday, uh, which you asked me to ask about. So I don't have a preview on this. So you're going to let everybody know at the same time. What are the three things that alarmed you? Because I don't find you ever being alarmed at anything in the two decades I've known you. <laughs> well, there are, there, are, there are definitely three things that I'm very concerned about that, I, that have happened since last Friday. And I'll, I'll go take the, the I'll end with the worst one. So first, um, and Republicans uh, have a policy where in that they limit their in, in the House, limiting their um, committee and subcommittee chairman to six years, whether they're ranking or uh, chairman. And then they have to give up that seat for somebody else. There is now talk that if when the, if the Republicans take control of the House, which is likely in November, that they would impose that same rule on the Democrats. Right. Which would now force several Democratic committee chairmen to lose, not be the, have the ability to be the ranking on that committee or that subcommittee. And I think it's a dangerous thing when the other party is telling the other party who their chairman and who their ranking members can be on their committees. And it's, it's a very bad thing for the institution. And it's not really, to me, not about governing. And it's more of a tit for tat. And I think it could spiral out of control, especially when the Democrats get back in power. What are they gonna do to punish the Republicans for doing that? Um, the second thing is there is a race in North Carolina um, uh, to replace outgoing Congressman, Democratic Congressman David Price. And in that race, uh, the North Carolina progressives rescinded their endorsement of a candidate who is a Democratic state senator because uh, she has received money and, uh, from APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And APAC has also bundled money uh, for this person. So the Progressive Caucus in North Carolina said in a statement that no American candidate should be accepting funds from an organization that provides financial support for those seeking to destroy our democracy. And then went on to talk about you know, the, the, the record of Palestinian human rights and how APAC 
uh, supports Donald Trump's Middle East policy, and that APAC has supported you know, some candidates who also, you know, members of Congress, who voted uh, not to certify the election um, you know, after uh, the 2020 election. Um, that to me is very concerning because it's, there, believe me, there are plenty of companies out there that are giving to Democrats uh, as well as to uh, congressmen that did not vote to certify the election that the progressives are not claiming about. And this is more of this rise of hatred on the extreme left and more of the rise of anti-Semitism on the extreme left of the Democratic Party, which I think is very dangerous. Um, the last thing is Donald Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance, right? I mean, uh, J- Donald Trump, a lot of the Republican Party is still very beholden to Donald Trump. And here's a guy who is very critical of Donald Trump and then completely changed his tune. <clears throat> but to me, the most alarming thing about J.D. Vance is he keeps saying that I could care less what happens in Ukraine. And uh, that if that becomes more of a mantra of the Republican Party, it's a very dangerous thing. I mean, I, I don't think it's a very good thing for the Republican Party or for the, the country or, or, or for the world, for that matter, to have more people in government that don't care about, you know, mothers being raped in front of their children, you know, children being tortured in front of their parents, uh, civilians getting killed, POWs getting killed, and also not caring about the threat to democracy and our allies over in NATO. So I found that endorsement uh, to be very alarming. Um, or uh, Holocaust survivors um, who in their twilight years, having survived those horrors, um, only, only to die in basements in Mariupol. Um, right. so, I mean, I, I think ultimately, um, it's, it's very, very dangerous. And indeed, I mean, there is a fear and a concern obviously by some that just as Russia helped in 2016 and tried to help in 2020, uh, the Republican side that, that Putin may do so, uh, again, uh, in, uh, the, the races later this year, and certainly maybe in 24, if he's still in power. Um, Jim, uh, let me uh, bring you into this Biden administration. Uh, Michael uh, just discussed uh, how um, uh, you know Congress is going to try to take this up. Four billion dollars in aid is a lot of money. Uh, the EU has uh, authorized 1.5 billion euros uh, in aid, and and a lot of nations are moving ahead in, in doing it, even if some like Germany drag their feet. We discussed that uh, last week, uh, week a little bit. And increasingly, governments are brushing aside Vladimir Putin's threats and concerns. Uh, this, as Putin comes under greater fire for the Moskva think. Uh, sinking and the conduct of the war with Russians sort of saying like, hey, what, what the heck is going on uh, over there uh, ultimately? Um, I mean, I think from his standpoint, he, he has brutality inside uh, and time on his side. So he feels he can uh, accomplish uh, his war aim. Wames, how's the administration doing? How's the alliance doing in helping uh, Ukraine? And what more should they be doing? Because I think everybody's recognizing that this na- next phase, as you know, each phase of this war is critically important. And, and it is very much the survival of the international order where Mike doesn't make right or Mike makes right, which is the case that Russia and China are trying to make. What's your sense on where we, we are now, what we should be doing and how we're doing? Well, I think with the latest uh, um large, large package that was released and announced, I guess, the last 24 hours, I think the administration is doing a lot better. The howitzers that they're now be, that they're now going to be showering the Ukraine military with, still not enough ammunition, I think, but, uh, but it's a start. I think that is showing that uh, we finally are able to, uh, either, you know, either find or get permission to or move more heavy equipment into Ukraine. And that includes not just our own howitzers, but also uh, looks like the Dutch are gonna be sending armor as well, the Brits are. Uh, There's a lot more going in to help the Ukrainian military with this fight, Uh, a bloody brutal fight that we're gonna see in the Donbass area that's gonna require 
uh, heavy metal to respond to it. And Ukraine is now getting not just that heavy metal, but they're going to be getting the um, uh, the drones as well that you mentioned, uh, and uh, and and a lot more. So so I think the administration is doing pretty well uh, this with this last package. I was really pleased to see that. I felt the initial howitzer and ammunition just was not enough, and I think this is going to work out much better. So. Um, so we're going to have to continue and not uh, and not get donor fatigue. I don't. We just. I don't think we can let up in terms of the resupply, particularly ammunition. Uh, and it's just going to. We'll be going back with more supplementals. I can see that happening in the in the medium term uh, to keep things flowing into Ukraine. So yeah, I think the administration is doing a lot better with this last package. What are the implications uh, of Russia's clarification? that it's not limiting its efforts to Donbass, right? I mean, there was this sense, okay, they're going to take the eastern part of the country, uh, they'll take the corridor, Mariupol, connecting Crimea uh, to uh, the Russian mainland, even though they built that bridge uh, across um, uh, to uh, connect uh, uh, the tip of Crimea to uh, across the, the Sea of Azov and the strait there. What, 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 what does this next phase look like then? Because th- there is this sense that, oh, you know, he's, you know, Putin is, not interested in taking over the country. Well, now they're saying, no, 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 we're going to take the eastern half of the country and the south of the country, right? And and then that, that means that at some point they're going to move on the rest of it, right? I mean, it looks like Putin is going to achieve his aim of taking Ukraine, crushing it and subjugating it. And then he's going to move on to all the other countries he's threatened, right? I mean, he's questioned the legitimacy of the Baltics. Where, where, where are we and where are we going, uh, Jim? And is Europe Kind of, you know what I mean? It's there was a lot of positive signs, a lot of very positive rhetoric, continuing positive rhetoric, but again, still foot dragging on Germany's part. There are those who accuse uh, France of foot dragging, although I think the folks in Paris see it a little bit differently. Um, you know, what's what's the sense on where we are, especially you know, as you sit in Paris, uh, as you sit in Paris, obviously teaching over at Sciences Po, uh, as you are this semester. Well, well, on the French, by the way, they're going to be providing. Um some uh, very sophisticated uh, heavy artillery that was just announced. So, so they're, they're continuing to put the weaponry into, uh, into Ukraine. But I, I think this, this Russian talk, I mean, you know, let's, let's see how they do in the next few weeks against a very determined adversary, Ukraine, who will be, who've been supplied now uh, and will continue to be supplied with the heavy weapons needed to try to blunt that offensive that the Russians are going to, are going to um, are going to start. We still are. I think the Russians are still facing logistical issues too, uh, leadership issues, uh, morale issues. They are, you know, well, they haven't performed so well so far. Uh, we're going to see what they can do now that they can have more mass in terms of their military. They're not going to be doing as many things at once as they were doing in this in that first round. The terrain is very different. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's certainly going to be in the favor of the Russians in terms of tank country, in terms of, of some maneuver. Uh, but um, but there's there, you know, they haven't shown that they can take eastern Ukraine. They haven't shown that they can take all of Ukraine and they haven't shown that they can go beyond Ukraine. Um, this Russian military has shown that um, they're, they're not as capable, certainly at this early stage of this war, as everyone assumed they were going to be. So. Uh, this is going to be a war of attrition as well that we're going to see in the Donbas. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be steel on steel, uh, artillery duels. Um, it's going to be tank and armor personnel carrier heavy, uh, suicide drones, uh, you name it. It's going to be 
it's going to be a pretty powerful punch uh, between those two uh, opposing sides. We'll see what what happens in terms of the Russian military at the end of it. At the end of it, uh, they might not be able to do much except uh, something in the Donbas, uh, you know, much less Eastern Ukraine. So I think it's a lot of talk coming out of the Russians. Um, there's a hard fight ahead. Uh, and let's, let's, let's withhold judgments until we see uh, what, what happens at the end of that. The Ukrainian military has proven itself. Uh, they've, they've got a different fight on their hands, but the West is behind them. And not just the U.S., but the other allies, too. So, so for the Russians, this is a bit, this is a lot of cheap talk. Um, and, and so uh, just uh, very briefly, because I also want to ask you about the, the presidential race and its outcome, which is going to be very consequential. Is there, is there a concern, as you, as you just uh, alluded, right? Is there a concern that, that Russia will act against the alliance at this point? Or is that actually seen as part of his rhetoric and, and that we can actually brush this aside? And, and you're right. I mean, obviously, French tend to be very strategic, very cautious, and pretty thoughtful about this kind of thing. For the French to agree to send advanced artillery uh, to Ukraine is a major step and a major signal. So that would suggest that this, this sense that, you know, that Putin is going to act out against uh, the, the alliance is not, is not taken as seriously as it would have been a couple of weeks ago, for, for, for example. Well, I think it's always taken seriously. Um, you know, the, he has, uh, Putin has ramped up his his rhetoric about, including with the diplomatic note, uh, saying that, uh, you know, that uh, resupply efforts are not appreciated and are, are and can't be considered targets. So I think we, the West, have to really redouble our efforts to, um, to be smart about how we do the resupply, which they are. I mean, there are multiple, I'm sure, multiple entry points into Ukraine, uh, concealment, uh, all kinds of ways in which we can uh, protect this uh, resupply routing and, and the, all the efforts being made. But I, I wouldn't put it past the Putin to try something. Uh, and we have to be aware of that and we have to be on guard about that. Uh, and I think we are. And I don't think anyone's dismissing something like that. This guy is too unpredictable. And, uh, and he's going to be focused on the campaign in the Donbas right now. So I'm not sure that he's going to pick the next few weeks as a time to also do something against the West and do something against NATO, unless he gets really frustrated. If he feels that his efforts are being heavily blunted and pushed back on by all this resupply, we might, we might see something happening then. But right now, um, I think we, we certainly don't underestimate it. And I think we, um, uh, and, and we do our best to guard against it, uh, to take all efforts to conceal what we're doing, which I know we're doing. And, I, and let's see what happens with the fight. If he gets frustrated on the battlefield, you know, we could see something else probably, but um, perhaps. But let's, I, I, I think right now, at a minimum, we can't underestimate uh, what this guy might do. Jim, I want to ask you one last question, and that's about the, the campaign. There's this sense Emmanuel Macron uh, is going to win, as he did uh, five years ago. But, but Marine Le Pen is doing a lot better. In uh, the last election, there was a lot of talk about her links to Vladimir Putin and the money she was receiving. And it didn't, you know, it, it was an issue, but it didn't seem like it was that big of an issue. This year, obviously, it's a lot more controversial, but she's worked to rehabilitate her image. I mean, is that playing a factor? And how does this next phase of the campaign look like? Because the stakes couldn't be higher, ultimately, given if she wins, it's a completely other ball game, isn't it? Well, the stakes are certainly higher. Absolutely. If she were to win, 
Um, you know, who knows what direction France would go in in terms of NATO, in terms of the European Union, in terms of uh, French support for Ukraine and the war with Russia. I mean, there's a lot of things that would be up in the air. Uh, but I think what we're seeing now, right now, after the after the debate that they've had a few nights ago, um, Marine uh, Marine Le Pen did not do as well as I think she might have wanted to. She did better than the last time uh, when they had the debate at the in, in that first election with Macron five years ago. She she did very poorly then. Uh, she did better this time around, but not so great uh, as to really tip the scales. And Macron did a fine job as well. And most commentators and the people on the street are looking at Macron as being the one who who came out on top in, in terms of the in terms of the debate. Um, also, a lot will depend on um, where the young people are going to go in terms of their voting. It's going to depend on on uh, turnout, just like in the U.S. election. Turnout is going to be important to make sure that the Macron is reelected with a with a with a large margin. But in terms of Putin and the and uh, and Le Pen's support for Putin, the idea that um, when she talks to Putin, she's talking to her banker, you know that whole thing um, that doesn't foreign policy, Russia, Ukraine, isn't really driving the vote here. Um, the way it wouldn't necessarily drive the vote in the United States. There's some similarities between our two countries here. Here in, in France, it's really, there's, there's um, identity politics at play. There is this feeling of uh, Macron being the president for the rich. Um, there's, there's some fear about Le Pen in terms of a lot of her radical views that she has kept hidden now, as you as you point out, she's revamped her image. But during the debate, it made she made clear that she did still felt like, um, you know, leaving the EU or or certainly um, uh, pulling out of the NATO military structure. Those two things would be on her uh, on her radar. You know, she she hasn't taken those planks out of her platform. So she still came across as having some pretty radical ideas. And I, and I think that um, uh, the, the Russia-Putin thing isn't as important as cost of living, for instance. That's a big thing here, as, along with immigration and the identity politics that I mentioned earlier. So there's other things that are driving voters probably towards, towards uh, Macron. And not necessarily that they like Macron, uh, you know, right. but, it's, but it's the other, uh, other folks have lost the election. And Le Pen still is too extreme. And so, so it's going to be, I think it'll be Macron. I think there's going to be a margin there. And it won't necessarily be because of, of, of Putin and Ukraine and the Russia war. It'll be because of um, the elements about Le Pen they, they just don't like. And a quick word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by GM Defense and L3 Harris. Sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. Uh, Patrick and Ilan, thank you very much for being so uh, patient. Uh, Patrick, uh, U.S. You know, you mentioned last week uh, Tony Blinken, uh, obviously over in the in the Pacific. Uh, a lot of activity going on, uh, you know, China's response to Russia, uh, India, and how it's trying to straddle the line. And of course, uh, the negotiations and, and talks we're seeing uh, to keep uh, the Solomon Islands from allying uh, fully uh, with, with China. Walk us through, you know, the, the dynamics in any way you want to start, start it off. Look, perhaps let's start with China-Russia first, and then go to what U.S. diplomats are trying to do in the region as, as we try to, you know, or China-India Russia, uh, et cetera, because the Chinese seem to, uh, Indians in part seem to have backed away a little bit 
uh, from uh, the Russians in canceling a helicopter contract, but sort of give us this sense overall of where we stand. Well, Vago, thanks. Um, maybe I should begin with the, the fact that uh, the best we're talking about with the Russian-Ukraine war is some kind of a stalemate. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, for instance, talking about conflict maybe enduring well through next year. Who knows how long it will go? Um, but while they're fighting over Ukraine, uh, the Asia competition will continue apace. And that's really what we're talking about here with China. So a couple of key things that happened this week uh, on China. One of them is that Xi Jinping gave a video speech. That's not unusual, but this was to the uh, Baowao Asia Forum, the major Asian uh, forum in Hainan in China um, that brings together many countries and leaders. Um, and Xi Jinping talked about the indivisible security uh, of the region. And he's really talking about um, a Kremlin concept, frankly, uh, and support for Russia, although not by name. He, he proposed a new global security initiative, which didn't sound new at all to anybody who is familiar with Chinese concepts uh, of uh, talking about sovereignty and territorial integrity and non-interference and the sanctity of the UN Charter, all of the things that Russia, their uh, no limits partner, uh, has violated in Ukraine, which is one reason why CIA Director Bill Burns has said uh, in at least one news channel that you know, China is a silent partner for Russia's war crimes. Um, significant conversation this week between the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, and Defense Minister Wei Feng Ha. Um, it, not surprising in terms of uh, there was no result. Um, it, this, was an, this was the U.S. attempting to manage the competition with China. Um, that's a phrase that we heard from, for instance, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman in Belgium this week. Uh, it's, it's part of making sure that the competition doesn't go off the rails. And yet that conversation um, really was not very reassuring because the uh, Chinese repeated their talking points about you better not underestimate us, you better not interfere with Taiwan, um, and you better not uh, talk to us about things like sanctions on Russia. Um, so not very, not very encouraging. The 73rd anniversary of the uh, People's Liberation Army Navy uh, this week as well um, then featured this uh, very clear amphibious attack on Taiwan, effectively. Um, you know, it wasn't very subtle when you've got a dozen Type 05 amphibious light tanks and transportilos you know, bringing in the Marines, storming an island and taking it. Uh, the message is pretty clear what they're trying to signal. So the U.S. is pushing back on all of this. Um, and uh, we've seen a, a flurry of, of diplomatic attempts, uh, most notably, perhaps, uh, although not necessarily most successfully, uh, today, in uh, the Solomon Islands, you have uh, the U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific uh, coordinator, uh, Kurt Campbell, uh, who doesn't leave the White House very often, uh, traveling with Assistant Secretary of State uh, Dan Crittenbrink uh, to the Solomon Islands, where uh, it's been made clear that uh, the prime minister there has already formally agreed to uh, a, a new deal with the Chinese that will give uh, the Chinese potentially uh, unlimited access, because it's a very vague agreement, uh, but could be military access to the Solomon Islands, even though the prime minister uh, denies that that's going to happen. Um, you have a couple of signals coming. One signal to Australia was, um, we're sending in our senior officials because, Australia, you didn't handle this issue. <laughs> you didn't preempt them. We thought you were going to you know, step up in the Pacific Islands. Uh, but two, uh, it's to show that we are in the arena engaging in this over the long term. You may China have won this round with the prime minister uh, of, of the Solomons, 
but we're going to be here for a long time. We're going to be working with Australia, Japan, many other countries, uh, and there will be swings back uh, in these island states uh, against China as well. Um, I think uh, when you heard Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman this week in Belgium talking about China parroting the Russian talking points um, and blaming Ukraine, for instance, for Russia's aggression, um, you know, that's Russia, China is not very popular right now with the region, uh, even though some of the phrases they're talking about may resonate. So Joe Biden, the president, uh, is going to be hosting the 10 Southeast Asian leaders of ASEAN at the White House on the 12th and 13th of May. And I think he'll have a, a lot of receptive ears there. Uh, he's going to be meeting with the new South Korean president, uh, Yoon Suk-yeol, when he visits uh, Korea uh, next month, about 10 days after the inauguration, and then going to Tokyo for a quadrilateral leaders meeting with Japan and Australia and, and India, and possibly a new Australian leader that week at that meeting. Um, so mostly uh, very good news on the diplomatic front for the U.S., except with this uh, very clear setback in the Solomon Islands for the moment. And uh, the best, again, you can do is uh, stay in the arena fighting, and at least the U.S. is, is doing that and, and working with allies. Uh, and uh, very quickly on uh, India, um, how, how, is, how are the Indians sort of changing their tone a little bit? Because it was a helicopter contract they canceled, wasn't it? India is looking to manufacture more. And so you have, uh, again, Prime Minister Boris Johnson in India right now uh, announcing that there's a new UK-India uh, special friends arrangement um, where they're going to accelerate uh, helping India become the make in India, the manufacturing hub they want to be, uh, including in defense sphere, as well as to expedite the delivery of uh, military equipment, engines, and other, uh, other equipment. Um, and that's the kind of uh, response that the U.S. is hoping uh, Japan... Uh, Australia, um, UK, and others will will help India because India is trying to move away from uh, being tainted by Russia, even if they can't really separate their long-term relationship with Russia uh, quickly. It's going to take a decade, they think. Uh, and also their non-alignment uh, position in the world in general is also not going to change. But they are clearly wanting to cooperate on countering China's growing influence they want to be a manufacturing hub. So there's some very positive things there happening in, in the relationship with New Delhi as well. And, and very briefly, let me ask you about Scott Morrison's uh, prospects. Uh, obviously, it's a very, very heated race. There is a, a, an interesting uh, debate and discussion uh, in Australia about China and at least the military threat China poses. You know, there, there are those who point out that, that China is actually closer to Berlin than it is uh, to uh, Australia in a lot of ways, uh, you know, d just sheer distance wise. I mean, how is that race going? It's getting bitter and ugly, and China is the central figure uh, in 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 the race. How do you how do you sense that election is going, and what's at stake, or are the stakes actually not as uh, significant, given sort of the overall vector of where Australia's uh, been going? Scott Morrison's in a very difficult position to try to win a re-election here. Um, the Liberal Coalition that he leads has been in power for a long time. Uh, and in democratic politics, you just have a, a pendulum swing. And I think uh, we're likely to see that happen next month in a very narrow race though. I mean, I think it will you know, be a, a couple of percentage points or less, um, but it does look like labor is gonna come back to power. They're committed to things like the Australia, UK, US uh, security partnership. They're committed to uh, the strengthening of the US-Australian alliance. Um, but I do expect, different voices in the Labour Party that could come into power might uh, take a very different uh, tone 
toward China uh, than, than what uh, Scott Morrison, uh, Prime Minister Morrison has been able to do. If Morrison can hang on and win, um, and uh, you know, then uh, there'd be no change in policy. Labor, uh, labor government is a bit of a question mark, but I think in the main, it's going to be uh, a lot of continuity, at least for the first couple of years in dealing with the Biden administration on uh, managing China. We can talk about that uh, more uh, in uh, subsequent uh, weeks. And Jim, uh, you know, certainly next week would be great to get your sort of after action, depending on how everything goes in sunny France. Ilan, uh, thank you very, very much for being uh, so uh, patient. Uh, it's been a, comp- a consequential uh, couple of weeks uh, in terms of the relationship uh, between uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia and, and the United Arab Emirates, two nations that um, I, I think are making their contempt for Washington and at least this administration uh, clear, uh, while at the same time benefiting from the administration's efforts, right? I mean, the United States is potentially uh, or is actually making radioactive uh, Russian oil and energy uh, on international markets, working with countries in the region to increase production uh, to help our European allies wean themselves off of Russian energy. And again, opportunities abound for countries that are in the energy uh, business. Qatar is going to be benefiting from it, just as the United States will as a gas ex- ex- exporter. Uh, at the same time, the, you know, the, the Saudis uh, told uh, Lloyd Austin, it's it's not a good time for you to visit us. Uh, that's sort of the ultimate diplomatic middle finger uh, to sp- uh, to send, particularly to uh, a cabinet officer that has had long and old relationships in both of those countries. Obviously, he's a senior commander in the Middle East, uh, and and there are some in Washington who are quite angry uh, at uh, these two governments for being angry at the United States. And there are those in Washington who would point out, we're, we're not the ones who killed uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, neither are we the ones who started sort of what might actually be a counterproductive war uh, in in Yemen. Ultimately, the frustration is much more focused on the on the Saudis necessarily than the Emiratis. The Emiratis uh, got out of the Yemen war in 2019, uh, and and indeed, you know, they're very frustrated with Washington for. Um, you know, not delivering, for example, on F-35s, on Predators, uh, and a lot of other uh, systems that the Trump administration was going to export. And they're frustrated it's being slow rolled. And I, and the case that they make is, look, I mean, the, the Houthis are aggressors, right? So you can't be letting them uh, off the hook, even if, um, you know, and, and pointing out, look, it's in the United States interest to remain engaged uh, in the region. I'm one of the people who believes it can't be binary. The United States can't turn its back on the Middle East just because there's a challenge in China or, or comes from uh, Russia, uh, ultimately. There is a frustration on Washington's part, on the other hand, that, uh, hey, look, guys, you know, the Russians really are a problem and you guys are now trying to portray and position yourselves as a safe haven for Russian money, uh, which is which is uh, very negative from our perspective, a Ukrainian perspective, maybe positive from uh, a, an Emirati banking perspective. Where is the relationship? Where does it have to go? Because the United States is also very reticent to sort of start employ- imposing sanctions on two countries that have flaunted uh, the, the global coalition uh, against Russia and indeed sort of told the Russians, hey, you can park your money here. We're happy to take it, uh, which I believe nobody should get away with uh, ultimately. Sort of walk us through where we are. I know that you were in the region recently, what folks there are saying and what more importantly, Washington has to be doing now. Sure. Well, I think that's right. And listen, I, I preface uh, all of my sort of insights and comments and analysis on that that trip that I took. I was in the region for about three and a half weeks between the end of January and the middle of February. And uh, I was in Bahrain and I was in the Emirates and I was in Israel. And 
the big takeaway, the macro takeaway that I had was that there, there's really three trends that are unfolding and the U.S. and the Gulf states and, and Israel as well are sort of drifting apart on these three fronts. Um, so the first is that there is a long-standing view, I think justifiably in the region, that America is eyeing the exits in the Middle East. This isn't a Democrat thing or a Republican thing, but very consistently in recent years, there have been signals out of Washington uh, that American interest in the Middle East is not consistent. It's sporadic, um, you know, reinforced by the Trump administration's decision to scale down in Syria, the Biden administration's hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. We can debate the merits, but the optics on th these decisions in the region suggest that America is leaving or America is at least a, an inconsistent partner. Um, and that tends to color a lot of uh, regional opinion. The second trend is the dynamics of the Abraham Accords themselves. So, you know, here in Washington, there's still this uh, open question about whether or not the Abraham Accords one and a half years on are really uh, a real thing, uh, if they're really sort of dynamic, if they're sustainable. Um, and part of the reason I went to the region was actually to try to uh, take a look for myself and, and see whether or not uh, these dynamics were self-sustaining. The answer that I found was a resounding yes. There's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in the region, uh, in the Gulf states, as well as in Israel for the economic and political lash-ups that are associated with the Abraham Accords. But striking in its absence is the fact that Washington's really nowhere to be found in these dynamics. There's not a lot of investment. Uh, there hasn't been up till now on the part of the Biden administration in the Abraham Accords. And there's a sense in the region, first of all, that America is sort of missing out on all this progress. There's, you know, it would be really nice if Washington was involved. But there's also a sense in the region that, you know, we can't wait for the Biden administration to get wise to the dividends of normalization. And so we're going to continue with these trends, uh, irrespective of what Washington does. And that's the third component. The third component, which is really sort of driving this wedge that you're beginning to see, is that the region, as seen from the region, U.S. Middle East policy under the Biden administration is really unhelpful. Uh, this uh, reset to this traditional you know, bilateral outreach uh, between Washington and regional states um, doesn't really capitalize on the new connectivity that you're seeing in the region, while the Biden administration's outreach, persistent outreach to the Iranian regime to re-enter some sort of negotiated framework, uh, what's looking like uh, built around the 2015 nuclear deal, is really running counter to the security considerations of a number of these states. And they've been very vocal about it in private contexts as well as in public contexts, and they really feel like Washington isn't paying attention. And that's why you're seeing, right, these things are all sort of combining uh, into this uh, pretty volatile mix in which the region is beginning to go its own way and to do so in a more assertive fashion than we've seen in the past. And my sense is that's where those frictions are coming from. Um, but I mean, ultimately, right, I mean, the administration um, was propelled to do the Iran nuclear deal in part because Israel, Saudi Arabia and the UAE were getting ready uh, in, in their own language, uh, right? I mean, I'm sure they said the same thing to you. We'll start it, you'll finish it. Uh, the White House's concern always was, that's exactly why we're doing a nuclear deal to address this. We're not trying to make them the best guys, but ultimately we will delay their nuclear capability and as such, uh, hopefully give an opportunity for moderate voices uh, to win over. We, we, we can debate whether or not that was a Pollyanna view or not. I mean, the reality was the Iran nuclear deal was working in terms of the nuclear part of it, 
Um, now we don't have that. We can debate whether or not that cat's out of the barn or the Iranians don't really want to do it or just trying to negotiate a higher price or what have you. But at, at the end, there is still a lot of frustration with some of the folks. Obviously, the people who are populating this administration also served in the Obama administration, or many of them did, with uh, the entire Khashoggi affair, uh, as well as um, you know the Yemen war, which has not necessarily paid uh, as many dividends, I think, as, as, uh, as the UAE uh, and as Saudi Arabia would have liked. At what point does the United States actually have to have a very tough conversation uh, an honest conversation, right? Not bow and scrape, but just be like, look, if you want to cast your lot with the Russians and Chinese, be our guest. And then actually be like, okay, well, then we can apply banking and other uh, penalties on you, right? I mean, I mean, these, you know, the United Arab Emirates has benefited from the United States, sometimes turning a blind eye, right? As, as everybody has in terms of banking transparency and a whole bunch of other things, right? I mean, if you can get the Swiss to change their tune, you will get anybody to change their tune because ultimately, you know, they want to make money. And the United States and and the EU can be very powerful governors on the ability to make money, right? I mean, how how do we need to be looking at this at this relationship? Because, um, you know, it's it's an important one, but it's one that is, you know, by design. The United States has been reducing its reliance on oil from that part of the world for a lot of reasons, and its focus is shifting to China. Um, now, we can debate whether or not it makes sense to allow the Chinese to enter that market, as has been the case. But the Chinese are exactly what these countries want, which is mercantilist, right? I'm I'm an authoritarian. You're authoritarians. We're all good. We really don't care about rights. It's it's about what's the bottom line. And if that's what's propelling everybody, don't, don't you just need to be honest about that? I, I think there's two things here. Uh, first of all, on the Iran deal itself, um, I absolutely uh, tend to ascribe to the notion that the Obama administration's considerations about uh, greater economic and political integration of Iran uh, being a sort of an engine for behavior modification and, and moderation was Pollyanna-ish. Um, in fact, uh, that dynamic, uh, you know, because we're spending a lot of time talking about China these days, is not so dissimilar from this idea of making China a responsible stakeholder um, that uh, held sway for quite a long time since the early 2000s and that has really been decisively debunked. Um, uh, it's been debunked in the China context. It really, unfortunately, hasn't been debunked in the Iranian context. But um, there's a, a sense that history is repeating itself a little bit. Um, and uh, at, at least in terms of the, the officials that I talked to, the concern was that the, the American view, because personnel, after all, is policy. And, and many, as you said, as you pointed out, many of the, the administration's principles were the same principles that negotiated the, the nuclear deal with Iran the first time around haven't really evolved in their views of Iran, even though the region has evolved. The region has sort of cycled past the dynamics that made the nuclear deal at least partially saleable more than half a decade ago. The second uh, problem, sort of associated problem that they are very concerned about is the idea of history repeating itself in the context of Iranian behavior. Because what we saw in the aftermath of the 2015 deal was that Iran uh, received benefits. The deal was a tactical arrangement to delay Iran's nuclear development for a set period of time. But the benefits that Iran received were strategic in nature. They were huge in terms of both direct and indirect sanctions relief. And it put the Iranian regime on a path of regional expansion that uh, countries that aren't separated from it by a large ocean have been forced to deal with in recent years. And there's a sense that the, the Biden administration is about to repeat the same mistake, especially with things like 
uh, a political rehabilitation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps um, and sort of removing them from the foreign terrorist organizations list, which is still on the table, as I understand it, in the White House. So all of those things, I think, are conspiring to uh, sour the region on the Biden administration in particular, not on America in general, but on, on the Biden administration's approach to the Middle East in particular. Um, as to where we stand, I, I think that mercantilist attitude uh, that external, other external actors uh, like Russia, like China are pursuing are becoming more and more appealing precisely because of this disconnect. The way I like to think about US Middle East policy generally over the long term is that it's like a pair of uh, sine waves on a machine. And sometimes the waves draw closer and sometimes the waves pull farther apart. And we're at a moment where the waves are pulling farther apart. And they're pulling farther apart because there's a mismatch in perceptions about regional security, about Iran, about regional engagement. Um, and, uh, but they're happening at precisely the time when countries in the region, for the maybe the first time in modern history, have real saleable alternatives to the United States uh, in the form of Chinese investment, in the form of uh, Russian political engagement, Russian military sales in the case of the Saudis. And so I think all of that is conspiring these countries to act a little bit more cavalier towards the United States than they would otherwise. Ultimately, is China or Russia, are China and Russia going to be better security guarantors than the United States? I mean, if their concern is Iran, is that, I mean, given Russia's stellar military performance uh, and the fact that the Chinese have even less right. military experience than the, you know, and the, and the Chinese have made it abundantly clear, right? The Russians are at least able to act and willing to act out of area. That's something that the Chinese are just simply, you know, uh, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, like Chinese doctrine is, I'm not really all that interested in getting involved anywhere else. My military capability is focused on my backyard uh, and will be focused elsewhere on the planet if my interests so dictate, right? Uh, so I'd love to get your sense on that, but very quickly, uh, Ilan, and, you know, because we only have a couple of minutes left. I mean, is, is that, a, is, you know, if, if you were sitting in Abu Dhabi or in Riyadh, or, do you want to bank on China and Russia being your security guarantor if your concern is Iran? Well, as an American, I would say absolutely not. Um, I mean, I, I think the safe bet uh, for these countries over the long term is the United States, and it always has been, and that's not going to change, both because of military staying power, uh, military performance in the case of Russia, and also the limits of engagement. Because as you pointed out, China is very willing to engage with dollars and cents or renminbi. It's far less willing to do so in terms of concrete security guarantees that carry any weight. But I do understand the appeal that these countries feel now about engaging with uh, investors that are more value free, that are less moralistic. And especially at a time when the United States is preoccupied by another part of the world in the context of Ukraine, uh, this sort of behavior uh, is, I think, understandable. It's not laudable, but it's understandable. Patrick, do the Chinese have any appetite um, for being the country that provides that security, or are they more sort of like, nah, we'll give you a lot of money and we'll help you out in the UN and we'll otherwise shield you. But aside from that, hey, don't don't call me, I'll call you. Well, the Chinese like to slough off security burdens onto others, whether that's the Russians in Afghanistan or elsewhere. Um, but uh, make no mistake, the Chinese are growing a world-class military to be the dominant power, not just regionally, but globally. So while they're focused on pacifying and domesticating, if you will, their near seas and their periphery, uh, all along they're building up the capability to control choke points, vital choke points globally, that includes in the Middle East, uh, 
uh, but also uh, in space and cyberspace. So intelligentized warfare is a huge uh, sort of initiative that the Chinese are trying to lead on. That, that has huge implications. They know that because if the US wants to intervene locally uh, from Chinese perspective, uh, they have global assets that can be disrupted. So that's why the Chinese are working not just locally, but also globally. Uh, and we've got about 30 seconds left, so I apologize for this. Ilan, Israeli politics, how long before uh, Bibi uh, is back uh, back in the saddle? So that's a good question. And, and uh, I'm, I'm not a betting man, so I wouldn't place odds. I mean, there's certainly a sense that Bibi's star is rising anew. But when I was in Israel, uh, look, in the Israeli political spectrum, there's always a tremendous amount of discontent with the ruling party. But I, I heard a lot of views about uh, how the governing coalition for a coalition that came to power uh, essentially united at, at being not Bibi and really not much else, they've uh, you know, governed fairly competently and they've, they've done a number of things on the defense front and on the economic front uh, that has built them at least a little bit of goodwill among the Israeli electorate. So my sense is that I think you're right, Bibi's star is rising. I don't know that the coalition falls apart just yet. I think it's a matter of time, but I mean, frankly, all Israeli political coalitions are, you know, have an expiration date. Um, I just, I wouldn't be confident predicting when this one's comes due. What's the sense uh, in Israel in terms of uh, aiding uh, the uh, Ukrainians, right? I mean, the Israelis have a lot of military capability that's very applicable uh, to this instance, uh, very briefly. Is that dynamic changing at all? Because it looks like, uh, you know, Naftali Bennett's calculation is I, I just need Russia on my side to stop the Iran nuclear deal, right? Or shape the Iran nuclear deal. And my interests don't really go beyond that very much. No, I, I think that calculus is changing a little bit. There was certainly a bit of that um, at, in the opening stages of the war and uh, made, I think, prolonged, that attitude was prolonged by the fact that uh, both Zelensky and Putin uh, nodded towards Bennett as a potential arbiter, potential broker, at least in the early stages. Uh, that ship has sailed, though, and I think you're seeing many, uh, much more unequivocal stances on the part of uh, Israeli national leadership uh, against Russia in favor of Ukraine, in favor of certainly of humanitarian aid, but also of more substantive military aid. Um, what's the interesting dynamic to watch, though, isn't elite opinion in Israel, because elite opinion in Israel, I think, is very solidly uh, on the side of um, uh, of Ukraine uh, in the fight against the Russians. It's the question of, of you know, what does the, the ethnically Russian, what does the Russian speaking community in Israel, which is something like a quarter of the population, uh, what does it think? And I think there the opinion is decidedly mixed. So because all politics are local, uh, at least in some ways, you see some Israeli politicians equivocating, and it's because they're playing to a domestic electoral base. Everybody, thanks so very, very much for joining us. Uh, really uh, appreciate it. I hope everybody has a very happy Passover uh, tonight. Uh, hope everybody has a great week and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much to you all. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.